What a revelation, you know? I mean, you can't ride an e-bike without a smile on your face. There's so many of us who diss it as being strong bike riders. And, oh, no, I'd never ride an e-bike, all that. And I certainly had that going on. But, you know, it was Davis Finney, who's the winningest bike racer in American history, and he has Parkinson's. And he was the guy that said, Leonard, you, you got to get an e-bike. And I'm like, well, if it's good enough for Davis Finney, it's good enough for me. Hi, everyone. You've tuned in to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity in our communities. I'm John Simmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your host on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. And what a ride we have for you in this epic episode with the one and only Leonard Zen of Boulder, Colorado. It's a long one, so I'm going to keep this intro super short. But before we sprint off the line, please allow me this moment to mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous support of our donors and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. And as I mentioned in our last episode, we've recently received over $1,200 in much needed and appreciated donations. Thank you all so much for helping out in any way that you can. I really do appreciate whatever support you're able to provide. To learn more about how you can make a difference, please head over to activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G, and click on the donate button in the top right corner of the page. As always, I include the donation link in the show notes. Okay, time to get this fascinating conversation with Leonard Zen rolling. Enjoy. Leonard, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today and have you on the Active Towns podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much. Why don't we do this? For our listeners, give us a little bit of your backstory. Share a little bit about yourself. Well, I live in Boulder, Colorado. I um, have for a very long time, and I came here because of cycling, I guess, and also because my wife's from here. And I used to be on national cycling team, sort of fortunately, I think, got a knee injury in the Tour of Ireland in 1981 that took such a long time to heal that during that time I was wandering around trying to find out what to do with myself and I ended up in Northern California working for Tom Ritchie at the very beginning of the mountain bike boom and started building bikes there and, and then shortly thereafter my grandmother died and left me some money and I moved back here and started Zen Cycles in 1982 so for 38 years I've been making custom bicycles now mostly what we make is titanium bicycles for really, really tall people. I happen to be, well, now I guess I'm 6'4", but I used to be 6'6", before I shrunk a lot. And I, um, you know, largely started that because when I was on national team, I'd get sponsors bikes that really would do horrible things, would shimmy like crazy when I went downhill and were a lot flexy and stuff that other riders didn't have to deal with. And I have a degree in physics, so I figured, what the heck, I can do better than this myself. And that's how that all started. And then along the way, I started writing articles in magazines. And then since 1989, I'm by far the longest person at Velo News. My, mainly what I do these days for them, I do a weekly FAQ column on Tuesdays online. And then I also write six times a year, I write sort of an in-depth scientific research project on something cycling related. And yeah, in 1995, I wrote a Zen in the Art of Mountain Bike Maintenance, which was sort of on a whim, but <laughs> that and 
Then I rode Zinn in the Art of Road Bike Maintenance a couple of years later. And since then, those have been like the best-selling cycling books in the world for the past 25 years. So that's how I put my daughters through liberal arts college and <laughs> not from building frames. Yeah. And I, you know, I've been an athlete my whole life, mostly bike racing and cross-country ski racing. But um, six years ago, I developed a heart arrhythmia. And so um, I, have, I now ride an e-bike which is awesome. I can still do everything that I want to do on the bike, but I uh, have to work a lot less hard to do it. <laughs> and I, um, and it's become a significant part of our business now too, making e-bikes that when you I, being in business for 38 years, a lot of my customers are getting pretty old and want e-bikes. So, yeah. Yeah. I reflect back on, uh, I think it was last year or maybe it was the year before I, I, I met up with you there at the, at the house and at the shop and you showed me an e-bike that you had just finished making for a customer and we had this discussion and gosh, even since then, the e-bike, uh, electric assist bikes are, are just blowing up all over the world. Yes. And uh, I, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that, but let's let's talk a little bit more about sort of your your role as an author, obviously, as you mentioned, you've been writing as a journalist for Velo News for a, a great deal of time. And of course, I, I think whenever I I have a discussion and, and your name comes up, everyone points to those two books, you know, the, the two books that are the classics in terms of bicycle maintenance. Let's talk a little bit about those two books real quickly do you try to do any kind of updates since technology has changed so much in, in the past few years? Yes, I do. Um, so currently, Zen in the Art of Mountain Bike Maintenance is in its sixth edition, and Zen in the Art of Road Bike Maintenance is in its fifth edition. So yeah, those continue to get updated. There's been changeover of ownership of Velo Press recently, so there's some delay now between doing a next edition, but that will be coming soon enough on, on those, but um, they've had to sort of get reorganized before we, we can go forward with that. And yeah, it's a, you know, it's a wonderful thing that I, I've always learned better about anything if I have to teach somebody else about it. So whether, and, and in most cases, that's, that comes in the form of writing about it. So it maintains my interest in the latest technology. You know, I think there's an awful lot of frame builders my age who just don't want to be bothered with all this new stuff that keeps coming down the pike and feel like they're, you know, getting dragged into it, <laughs> kicking and screaming. But I kind of welcome it that it's uh, always um, something interesting and new to learn and to then figure out how to make it work and how other people can then make it work on their bikes. Yeah, that's that's such a great point too. And even you know, as your role as a journalist and in talking, writing about technology and writing about trends, I'll never forget. It was it was probably almost a decade ago, where where our, our good mutual friend, the the late Kevin Edwards, uh, put us in touch, and and you reached out to me when I was living in Kona. And you, you were looking for some information about, you know, sort of like the bike counts and what was, you know, happening in terms of uh, the bikes that were in the Ironman race, the Ironman World Championship and, and you know, good, good memories there. But you're absolutely right. You know, staying on that cutting edge, you know, keeps you up to speed and keeps you up to date on all the technology. And 
then as a frame builder and you know you can you could probably say well yeah i i do know about this new stuff and if that's what you want on there including by the way an electric assist motor <laughs> we can do yeah. that for you uh so you have another book though so the the most recent book that you that you wrote uh, which was just a couple of years ago a few years ago and i guess now was the haywire heart how too much exercise can kill you and what you can do to protect your heart now that book is obviously quite personal to you because it's, it, it, it talks a little bit about your own experience with the quote-unquote haywire heart. Talk a little bit about the book and also talk a little bit about if you're aware of some new data and some trends and research. You know, it started because of my own personal experience and that I suddenly realized that I was by no means alone. Like I was like, what the heck is happening here? You know, and I, I was super fit and racing and doing well and and all of a sudden this happened and I, but, you know, I'd sort of noticed over the years, a number of the guys that I used to cross country ski race, it wasn't so much the bike racers, but the cross country ski racers that just like suddenly disappeared and there'd be some rumor of something happening with their heart, but I just really never followed up. And, and so then when this happened to me, then I did follow up with those guys and turned out that they all had quit because of arrhythmias theirs were actually much more dangerous than mine theirs they could have died from mine is not life-threatening and one of them in particular had done a lot of research and was absolutely convinced that it was a function of him pushing it constantly too hard exercising and training and you know in following his leads on most of the research that had been done was from europe most of the research on heart conditions when i started this project from the U.S. was all on really classic cardiac patients, you know, overweight and diabetes and, and smokers and that sort of thing. But on athletes, it was mostly uh, Scandinavian studies of cross-country ski racers in mass start events. And, and it certainly seemed to me like this was, you know, it started with an article in, in VeloNews that Chris Case and I wrote an article in VeloNews about it. And then it was the most clicked on article on VeloNews.com for that whole year. And so that said, well, hey, you know, maybe we ought to write a book. <laughs> and there's a just wonderful man who's a cardiologist, an electrophysiologist, which is the kind of cardiologist that works on electrical problems uh, from Louisville, Kentucky, who is also a bike racer. And, and he also had had to quit racing because he got atrial fibrillation, which is what he works on every day, you know, dealing with patients with that. And so he was the perfect guy to do this, to be a co-author on this book. And since then, I've gotten lots of follow-up information. The main thing that I get is lots of people contacting me who all of a sudden are faced with this themselves. And what do they do about it? And how do I, how, how can I go on living you know when i the everything that i've sort of defined myself as i can't do anymore i talk with a lot of people like that in terms of research there's been a lot more research largely because of technology with now you have these fitbits and 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 iphone apps and things like that that actually claim to be able to detect arrhythmias like afib not not just record heart rate but actually can get enough information from from one or two contact points with your skin to be able to 
to do that, which I think is rather amazing. And then that makes it possible to have these very big studies of big data, you know, where you have data on a whole lot more people that are that are just using these apps that then then you can see the prevalence of it. And, you know, the, the hardest thing always about all this sort of research is actually cataloging who's an athlete and, you know, what, I mean, everybody's an athlete at some level. And the question is, you know, some studies, yeah, this guy's an athlete because he runs twice a week, you know, or uh, ones that really, you know, the, these people do whatever, 10 marathons a year, it's a totally different set of conditions that they're dealing with. And so it's still not sorted out to the point, I think still the best studies are those ones of, of Scandinavian cross-country ski racing, because that's, that's a fixed distance and, it, and it's so many people. Yeah, sixteen thousand people a year doing each of those events in Norway and Sweden, and and then you can track them over years because they tend to continue to redo the the event over and over and over again. And is it your sense that you're still hearing from more and more people that are discovering the book, discovering the condition, and reaching out? Yes, definitely. That that hasn't slowed down. (laughs) No, that hasn't slowed down. With a book, usually you write it and there's a there's a surge initially when you write it and you do some book signings and a little book tour and 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 the number that you sell in the first year always exceeds anything. It's all just trickles way off after that and and then tends to go out of print not too many years down the road. And this one has never sold as many as as like my bike maintenance books. But it continues to be steady, and people have heard about it enough. And, and there still isn't another book like it, really. That it's it still tends to be when somebody is an athlete who suddenly comes down with an arrhythmia, and people have been kind of paying attention. They tell them, "Hey, you got to read this book." And so it, it just it it continues to just keep selling. And I'm I'm relatively findable. You know, because I have this bike building business and the guy who deals with the sales at zincycles.com email constantly forwarding me emails that are sent by people looking for me, hoping that I'll talk to them about their arrhythmia. So, yeah. And I found it to be a fascinating book on many different levels as a, a former competitor, age group competitor, never that fast, all that fast in in Ironman and, uh, you know, Kevin, who we mentioned before, and and we lost Kevin a a few years ago. And, and we suspect that he was also a victim of this condition. I, I don't think that we know definitively, but it's probably quite likely that this is what got him. And so it was fascinating to, to like listen to the science side of it. And I'm a science guy. I've got the exercise physiology background as well as I have a cardiology background. I did, I did mm-hmm. research at the University of Michigan uh, Medical School in, in cardiology way back when. Uh, I think I've forgotten most of that stuff. But what was really compelling to me is the narrative. These were case studies, and it was, you know, telling the story of some of these people that were out there. Talk a little bit about that, because that was a really wonderful way to structure the book. Yeah, we were fortunate in that 
lot of people were willing to share what it had been like for them. And, you know, probably the most well-known being Dave Scott is seven-time winner of the Ironman and and just been a phenomenal athlete and and always super competitive. Anything he does, he always has to beat everybody that's around at it. And he has atrial fibrillation and him sharing his story, which, you know, is, is sort of at one end of it where, again, it's not a life-threatening situation, but it certainly is is career changing for somebody like him that uh, has has always defined himself that way as being you know the fastest baddest guy you know fastest guy running swimming and biking and you know to one of my buddies that I used to cross country ski race with who now is actually on the heart transplant list because his is deteriorated to to that point and I I, I think that it puts a human face on it of of you know geez these guys are not that much different from me and what they were doing with themselves and how they were training and that's what i continue to hear you know from people is is geez you know i i've been doing whatever it is bike racing running skiing that that i've been doing this forever and i thought that it was giving me this great longevity and everything and then all of a sudden this happens huh yeah and, and you mentioned it earlier, uh, really what we're talking about is primarily something that is related to the electrical side of the heart. It's, it's how the heart, um, you know, maintains its rhythm. What are some of the symptoms? So somebody who's listening to this and, and has had maybe, you know, decades of training, maybe as a, an age group athlete or whatever, and something just doesn't seem right. So how, how does that manifest typically in, in symptoms? Well, I don't think there's a typical way, but there there's a whole broad range of things that can happen. One that can happen is all of a sudden you're a lot slower and you don't know why. You you know, if you're a cyclist that has a power meter, you actually can measure it like what's the what's going on here? Like 2 weeks ago I could do this much power, now I can't I am, you know, 50% lower. And was that how it sort of felt for you? Because you had mentioned this, you don't have the type that wasn't the necessarily life-threatening. Yeah. So in my case, what happened was literally I was, I was riding up a mountain trying to set a Strava KOM. Of course you were. (laughs) Yeah. And all of a sudden, and I'd been monitoring my heart rate the entire time. And I always knew what kind of heart rate I needed to be at, that I wasn't going to blow up, that I still had, you know, another 15 minutes left on this climb. And I was watching it. And all of a sudden, it went from like 155 to 208. I, of course, assumed that there was something wrong with the heart monitor, you know, and just was tapping that. And, and I didn't notice a drop off in power. I still felt fine. It's just that there was this number that was much higher that I was looking at. And I kept riding hard another seven minutes, and it never came down. It just stayed up there. And when you're going that hard, like if you put your your hand up to your carotid artery or something and try and measure it with your finger, if you're pedaling hard and trying to go as fast as you can, and you're at 155 or you're 208, it's going to be really hard to count it in either case. You know, it's just like, so verifying this number without actually stopping and was kind of un- impossible. And so I did stop and then it came right back down again. And then I was like, oh crap, I was, that was a you know, great record pace I was on and uh, there was probably nothing wrong. And 
So I actually, on the way down, like literally five minutes after this had happened, I went and I did set a Strava KOM on another little chunk of road and then went off and did intervals in another canyon. And, and I was certainly in denial for some time. In that case, in my case, I then, at the end of the day, I thought, you know, this was in the morning, uh, just before five, I thought, I'll, you know, I really been meaning to call my doctor. I had to call my doctor. I called my doctor about it. And they said, well, um, you should go to the ER. So what? I feel completely fine. And so I went to the ER and, and that's where it got diagnosed. And I was fortunate in that the, that the doctor on call there, both times when I've ended up in the ER because of heart arrhythmias, it's been the same guy there, Shannon Sovendahl who is well-known. He was the team doctor for the Garmin Sharp professional cycling team. So he was constantly monitoring the hearts of these elite cyclists. And he and so when he told me, look, I check this, this stuff with them. And, and the main thing was they took a blood sample and it showed the elevated level of a hormone called troponin, which which is something that's produced when cardiac cells die. So it's an indicator of a heart attack. And he said, you know, I don't see elevated troponin when I, after these guys do a hard workout. It's, something is going on here. So, so that's when the whole cascade started, when I ended up in another ambu- in an ambulance to downtown cardiac unit and all that. So that was, that's one example. As your heart rate goes way high, mine still... Mine, I've become much more sensitive to it when I when I feel mine go up. It's no longer that I don't notice anything. It's like literally, I can feel when it's about to happen, and I kind of did that time too. I felt that like a a big double bump, you know, and then that's what got me to look down. That was weird, and then I see it go up, but I couldn't feel it like really pounding hard. Now I do feel it it feels like there's a fish flopping around in my chest. Yeah. And that, that's the sensation that I've heard before is that, that fish flopping sort of feel. Yeah. There's the word tachycardia, which basically means fast beating heart. And there's, there's also fibrillation. Fibrillation is by definition, a heart rate faster than 300 beats a minute. So if you're up to 300 and it's, and it's, kind of relatively organized just really fast that's tachycardia if it's over 300 and then furthermore if it's disorganized and somewhat random then that's fibrillation and i haven't had that personal experience so i don't know i i just know people tend to feel weird when they're in atrial fibrillation they they can feel dizzy they just don't feel right and you know then there's Another thing that athletes in particular commonly have, which is called PVCs or PACs, which is, stands for premature atrial complex. Literally, it's, a, it's an early heartbeat initiated in the atrium, or PVC is premature ventricular complex. And those tend to happen, well, in my case, they've happened for decades at rest. You know, athletes generally are heart gets bigger and bigger in order to answer the demand for for greater blood volume and they become more efficient at pumping blood so their resting heart rate tends to be low well if your resting heart rate is low enough and and you have this this node in the upper atrium of your heart that is what stimulate which what sends the signal for the heart to to contract and if that node is waiting 
too long, you know, the whole heart's waiting and waiting and waiting for this for the signal from the sinoatrial node, uh, sinus node. Unlike other muscles in the body, any cardiac muscle cell has the ability to become a pacemaker cell. It has to do with the with the voltage at the wall of the of the cell at the cell wall and how the cell is going to respond to that change in voltage. And the point being that if any one of those cells contracts, it will then send this wave out through the whole heart and the entire heart will do that. And so that's why it's called premature because it's like if there's such a long gap between heartbeats and you have these some cell or group of cells that's somehow developed this automaticity, this this ability to be a pacemaker cell, and it waits long enough, this this voltage at its cell wall will come will rise to the point where then it's gonna it's gonna fire. And when it fires, then the whole heart will fire. And so what it usually feels like rather than a premature beat is it feels like a skip beat because when it beats, the heart won't be full of blood. So you actually don't get a pulse, you don't get a beat because it just there was nothing there. Uh, and then it waits a whole the whole cycle again till then it beats again. And by that time, the heart's really full of blood and you get like a really big beat, like boom. And so that's happened to me for decades. And some people, that becomes the point where they they can have like 40, 30 to 40,000 PVCs a day. And they won't really even necessarily notice it, but they will definitely notice a drop off in performance because you do about 100,000 heartbeats in a day. So if a third of your heartbeats, there's no blood in your heart when that happens, you're going to be slower. Now, you, you said something there that, that I want to circle back around to, and that was about the hypertrophy of the heart muscle. The heart is a muscle, but it's a very, very special type of muscle. And the cardiac tissue, the cardiac muscle cells, or as you're describing, are very, very specialized. And it's not really normal that a, a heart hypertrophies to massive sizes. I mean, it, it, it is kind of natural that a, a, an athlete's heart is going to be a little bigger. We don't really know, but that could be part of the dysfunction that's happening here is the, these athlete hearts that if they're experiencing, and not to say that it's happening in all cases with the haywire heart, but certainly that's one of the things and one of the theories that could be part of this is that the hypertrophy gets to the point where it starts to interfere with the proper electrical conduction. So we're not really talking about normal heart disease here in terms of blockages of arteries and things of that nature. It really is this sort of haywire heart syndrome, and it could be linked to this hypertrophy. Is that a, a pretty good summary of it? Yeah, and one of the theories for why this happens in in particular aging athletes is that when you're a young person and you do you know massive amount of exercise, your heart will get bigger in order to answer that demand for more blood. But if you were to detrain yourself over say three months or something, your heart would tend to return to its original shape. When you're in your fifties and sixties and onward. You know, you, all you have to do is look at your skin, feel your skin. You know, it's so much thinner and less flexible than it used to be when you were in your 
20s. And that all of your tissues are to a certain extent like that. So when your heart then gets bigger like that in order to answer this greater demand, it doesn't really have the ability to shrink back down under detraining the same way it did when you were in your 20s. And in the process, because it's less flexible in this process of of stretching and getting bigger, it tends to get some little micro tears in there and some bleeding. And then you can get scar tissue. And then the scar tissue is literally the substrate for these for these arrhythmias, because it's like, like I said, the current is moving like a wave through all the cardiac cells. And if you think of water flowing smoothly down a smooth uh, sand surface, and then you throw a rock in it, you get eddy currents around the rock. And this is what, that's the sort of thing that happens with the scar tissue in the, in the heart. And, and, um, and so it's, it's that, that scarring that's the, this this substrate for arrhythmia and and that's going to happen more the older you are if you keep asking so much of your heart that makes sense and then you know the other thing that i did want to clarify just because you and i come into this with a different certain a little bit more understanding than the average person there's a big difference between heart attack and arrhythmia and heart attack is like you said that's where you get a blockage of one of the coronary arteries and, and, and that's sort of what we think of as garden variety heart disease, where you have, you have inflammation and, and plaque buildup on the interior of the arteries, and it collects and can have something to do with high cholesterol. There's always debate about that. But, but in any case, that doesn't tend to be so much an issue with athletes, but that's, a heart attack is where cardiac infarction is where cardiac cells die, a certain portion of your of your heart dies from lack of blood and that's a plumbing issue and what we're talking about are electrical issues where the arteries may be completely healthy but the the beating of the heart gets whacked out yeah no, that's a great way to to describe it When we come back, we'll talk with Leonard a bit about how he dealt with his condition and what got him back out on the bike. We're back here with Leonard Zinn and Leonard, let's shift a little bit towards the positive stuff here. (laughs) Let's shift towards what got you back into life and really enjoying activity again you probably had to go through, get some, seek some medical attention. But then beyond that, there was also a secret weapon that you had, and you just happened to make those for other people. So tell us that story. Yeah. So, you know, as the years went by after my initial heart arrhythmia, initially I could go up to like 150 heart rate before my heart went into arrhythmia. And then you know, the next year was maybe 140, and the next year is like 130, and the next year is like 120. And now it's starting to be low enough where it doesn't take a whole heck of a hill to put me into arrhythmia. And essentially, what you're saying is that it exponentially it was getting worse. Yes, exactly. Yes, and 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 I don't I I don't know why, and no cardiologist has been able to explain to me why that happens. But and my world just got smaller you know, where I was used to going, you know, every year. So this happened a month after my 55th birthday. 
was the first time I had the arrhythmia. And, and for 30 straight years, I'd been doing on my birthday, which is late June. So it's one of the longest days of the year. We'd been doing this thing called the Zinfondo, where we would do this super, super long ride on my birthday. And uh, tons of people would come, you know, sometimes we'd have 100 people. And we'd do some crazy distance, you know, like what we have call here the Grand Loop, which is 220 mile loop where we ride up Rocky Mountain National Park and over Trail Ridge Road. So we go over the Continental Divide, and then down through the Winter Park Valley and over more passes and come back to Boulder. And it's like 17,000 feet of climbing and 220 miles. And, and, and that was, you know, one of many routes that we would do, but they all be similar in difficulty. And this, you know, happened to me a, a month after that. And so I, you know, I was just always used to, you know, cross country ski racing. I always picked out the hardest, longest races, you know, and I just all of a sudden to have it where, where my bike riding was constrained to a little tiny maximum of one hour little loop near my house. And pretty soon it gets pretty boring. You know, you've done these same rides over and over and over again, and that just nothing's changing. It's like Groundhog Day every day. And yeah, it was getting harder to get on the bike. That's for sure. Then also because of my my work as a cycling journalist, I had gotten to know some of the e-bike companies, and in particular Bosch, which is you know well known for electric power tools and also for all sorts of parts under the hood of your car. And they and Bosch is the industry leader because they had basically taken a power steering motor and a battery from their electric chainsaws, and they combined the two and put it into a bicycle and. And they've been improving on that ever since. And and so I called them up and I said, hey, you know, I want to make myself an e-bike. Can you sell me a motor? And they said, oh, no, we can't do that. We, we're only set up to sell to, to big factories. You know, we can't sell to, you know, we don't have any structure to support that. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to keep looking. Somebody's going to do it. And it might as well be you guys, you know, because small framers are going to start wanting these things. If I want one, I know others are going to want it. And so they said, okay, give us six months. And then in six months, they, they set up a distributor, Saris, near Chicago. They set up a service, guys, Magura USA, also near Chicago, that would go out and do dealer seminars and that sort of thing. And they set up quality bicycle products as for source of small parts. And, so, and then they said, okay, now you can do it. And during those six months, I'd worked on, like, how am I going to attach this to the bike? And so... 3d printed the the motor mount so it's this big big piece of titanium to get that a piece like that machined would have just been ungodly expensive and then each one after that would have been still ungodly expensive because you're you're just having to throw out so much material and then it's a complicated part and but 3d printing it was still expensive it was five thousand dollars for one of them by a company in germany that makes the 3D printer, or $7,000 for 10. And so I thought, well, that's a no-brainer. So I got 10 of them, and, and uh, that got me in the e-bike business. You know, I made my own, and good God, what a revelation. You know, I mean, you can't ride an e-bike without a smile on your face. There's so many of us who diss it as being strong bike riders. Oh, no, I'd never ride an e-bike. 
all that. And I certainly had that going on. But, you know, it was Davis Finney, who's the winningest bike racer in American history, and he has Parkinson's. And he was the guy that said, Leonard, you, you got to get an e-bike. And I'm like, well, if it's good enough for Davis Finney, it's good enough for me. So I, I, uh, that's really with a push that it took for me. And, and, and I know I have then been, you know, the push that it took for others. You can still pedal just as hard as you want. It's just that you have this assist. And like in my case, if I were to get be two hours from my house and have some massive heart issue, I can still put it on turbo and put out basically almost no power at all. And the bike will just get me home. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. And you're touching upon something that I think is really, really important for folks because maybe they don't have a heart issue, but maybe they just have lost a step and, and they're not able to, to keep up with their, their loved ones or their friends. It brought joy back to writing for you. It sure did. It sure did. You know, and I, I could go back to riding with the same friends I had. I still do in the winter. I still do the same Wednesday morning cyclocross group training sessions that with the same people that, you know, there was no way I could do that with the arrhythmia without the motor, but now I can still be at the front and it's again, even I can still work on my bike handling and it's even better because I'm not completely in the red zone where I can't make good decisions when I come to weird corners in the mud and whatever. And so it's just been fantastic. And yes, and to be able to ride with both with Davis Finney and his wife, Connie Carpenter, who's an Olympic gold medalist from 1984, both of them ride, ride e-bikes. We're back to being able to ride together. And, and I do think that one reason that people buy tandems is so that they can ride with their spouse, who's of a very different speed than them. Well, a e-bike is a complete equalizer. You know, my wife and I, she mostly rides horses. And yes, she used to be a great bike rider once, but she doesn't, she basically doesn't ride a bike. And I ride a bike all the time. But with the e-bikes, she can just have it on a higher setting or whatever. You know, it's just easy to ride together. I mean, I, I think my guess is that I haven't seen any numbers. My guess is the tandem sales are going to go down if they haven't already because, because e-bikes then allow the slower one of the, of the pair to then have the ride that they want but not have to relinquish control of the bike to, the, to somebody else you know they still get to have their hands on the on the steering and braking and so yeah and i and i know you know if peter sagan came to town i could ride with him you know i can keep up with anybody on my e-bike without putting my heart into danger into danger putting your health and your your life into into at risk and that's that's an important factor what sort of percentage are you looking at in terms of the b bikes now that you're selling and that you're building are going to be the e-bike versus the standard bike? Oh, we're probably about 20%. Okay. You're about 20%, which is pretty, as a small boutique builder, you know, that's a, that's a pretty good chunk there. And we're seeing, I mean, you, you're sort of on the, on the cutting edge of, of, of this information because of, of Velo News. And you and I had talked about this a little bit when I met up with you a couple of years ago is that we're just in, in Europe at that time, it, it was just exploding the number of people who were riding e-bikes. And I try to spend uh, at, at least a week or so over in the Netherlands each summer, not this year, obviously. And I just kept seeing more and more, especially the older people on bikes riding on the cycle tracks that connected through the countryside, one village to the next village in the Netherlands. And they were just 
the numbers were just going through the roof. What, what are we seeing here domestically? Yeah, we're way behind Europe, probably seven years behind Europe in terms of adoption of this, but it's going up rapidly. And there's e-bike stores popping up all over the place and all the big manufacturers are getting into it. You know, when you have Cannondale and Specialized and, and Trek and, and all them, not just having one model, sort of a utilitarian model, but actually having multiple models, some of them being, you know, like Specialized has some mountain bikes that are basically like a downhill bike with a chairlift built in and just these phenomenally cool road bikes and as well as utility bikes that you can have the whole family on that's power electric assist and there's commuting bikes and there's a whole range and and the part of the, the market that I'm most familiar with is sort of the real enthusiast level and one of the things that I notice is that you know customers of mine say in their 70s who have a group of friends that they've always ridden with now I tend to be building bikes for really tall people so they can't just go anywhere and get a bike but they will have ridden with these guys for decades. And now all of a sudden, most of their friends are on e-bikes. And as soon as they get to the hill, they get dropped. And the whole thing stops being a lot less fun. It's not the same camaraderie and they're not suffering together in the same way. And, and they're waiting for them. And, and so that's only going to just keep going on and on and on. Because we, the baby boom generation, are now of the age where e-bikes are what we're going to be needing more and more of. And there's so many of us. We're this big surge that, that came up during the 1970s bike boom and the big lump being swallowed by the snake, you know, and that lump is now at this age where, where can't, we can't do what we used to be able to do and we want to still be able to do those things. And so it's, it, I, I just can't imagine it's not just going to keep going up by double digits yeah. year by year for a while yet. Yeah. And it, so. it, I think we're seeing some indication that the price points are starting to come down just a little bit, because as you mentioned, you know, it was really, really uh, quite costly in the early stages. And so we we are seeing that. And, and we're also seeing some some sort of cheap versions of e-bikes hitting hitting the market. And some of them may not be the most reliable. And, and but the, then again, they 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 as happens with technology, you know, it, it helps broaden the awareness of that. Um, just the fact that, you know, we had bike share bikes that were electric assist bikes. And I believe Boulder's going to start getting electric assist B-cycle bikes as part of the bike share system. And so, and we have a few of those uh, here in Austin and what a kick in the pants is just having that little bit of a, of a boost of electric assist. And it, it helps a great deal, especially when you're on a bike share bike or a cargo bike, which is a much heavier frame, uh, super, super stable with, in the case of like a cargo bike, if you're, you know, carrying a whole bunch of groceries and maybe a kid or two, uh, you can actually make it up some pretty steep hills. And, you know, from a, from a commuter perspective, what we're seeing too is that that little bit of additional assistance, hey, can get you to your destination, your work meeting, and not be completely drenched in sweat when you know yeah. it's 105 degrees out. Yes, yes, you don't you you don't you you don't have to work in a place that has a shower cap capability if you've got an e bike. You 
it's you know and i kind of think of my i've got an electric car too and i kind of think of my e-bike as it's basically an electric car with no trunk space you know but i take it everywhere unless i need to lug something big that's what i'm on so i i was gonna you you sort of spoiled my joke because my joke was going to be that you had been building bikes since 1982 and you have a reputation of specializing in what I would call custom bikes for vertically challenged individuals. And by challenged, I was going to say that, yeah, you guys are always hitting your head in the door jams. But on your website, you even talk a little bit about the, the fact that even somebody who is shorter oftentimes ends up being put on a bike that just doesn't fit them. Maybe the cranks aren't even the right size. So talk a little bit about that whole custom concept and and, and will you build a bike for someone who's 5'2"? Yeah. Yeah, we build bikes for people of any size. It's just we don't have any competition in the big and tall bikes. So it's what we tend to focus on. The more you you compete head-to-head with Giant and Trek and Cannondale and everything, the harder it is to, to make a living at it. And so, and they're not, you know, only six-tenths of 1% of the U.S. population is taller than I am. Uh, so it's not going to be worth it for them to be making fancy carbon molds for bikes of, for people that are six foot ten or anything like that. Well, talk talk a little bit about that little thing I just alluded to. There is the fact that even somebody who's not very tall or isn't quite the right size, that example of like the crank arm length. Yeah. So my philosophy is that everything should be in proportion to the rider, not just the frame size. And the bike industry basically has always, once you become an adult, it's essentially the same length cranks. 170 to 175 millimeter range is not a range when you consider the range of people's, people's heights and leg lengths. And nobody questions when they go out to buy their four-year-old or five-year-old a bike, it's going to have 12-inch wheels. It's going to have 100 or 110 millimeter long cranks. It's going to have little tiny handlebars, little tiny seat. Everything's little. And then when the kid gets to be eight, maybe, then they're going to get a 16-inch wheel bike, and the crank will be a little longer, like 130 millimeters. Everything will be a little bigger. And then, and then they'll get a 20-inch and a 24-inch wheel bike, and then finally they'll be on a you know, 26-inch wheel mountain bike, or, or they'll be on a road bike with 700 sea wheels. But then once that happens, once they become on an adult bike, mountain bikes, you continue to have differences in wheel sizes. So those can continue to be proportional to the rider. But I, but I really think, you know, in an ideal world, everything would scale up. So the bikes are all kind of, if you if you saw them without a reference, they would all look like basically the same size bike, but one would be just, everything would be bigger, the wheels, the cranks, you know, everything scale up. So we, for 20 years or more, we've been making cranks for all lengths and we and we go down to a hundred millimeter crank and up to 250 millimeter and and like i said the standard is 170 to 175 and we basically don't make the sizes that the big companies make we make everything either bigger or smaller and there is no question that you know if it's efficient for you know egon bernal to win the tour de france on a 175 millimeter crank with 84 centimeter long legs you know, that relationship of something around 21% of his leg length is his crank length, that's been pretty consistent on top cyclists 
Tour de France winners for the whole history of the Tour de France, basically. And we know that works because those guys can do that year after year after year and for, you know, 3,000 kilometers in 21 days. And that it's not only the angles that your knees and hips go through, then, but it's also the relative extension and contraction of your muscles. And if you're much taller, much shorter, obviously the shorter person, the strain on their low back because their, because their hip angle gets so much tighter at the top of the stroke and their knee and their knee again their the tendency for this patellofemoral pain syndrome because their 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 kneecap is pulled so much against back against the condyles because their knee is so tightly bent at the top of the stroke in order to deal with this crank that's that's really way too long for them that and also asking their muscles to go through this huge range of extension contraction and then you have it at the you know the seven foot guy who's working like a sewing machine you know he's going through very little knee bend very little ankle hip bend and very little extension and contraction but if that same guy you know say he's a basketball player you know seven foot basketball player when he goes to jump he bends his knees just as deeply as the five foot six guy does and so why should it be any different on the bike and so yeah it's just always made made sense to me and all the studies and tests we've done with it has shown that yeah you actually are not only more efficient and more comfortable but you're faster with the with the right length crank and well and it's and it sounds like you know ultimately what you're talking about because you sort of slip something in there uh you know it's also healthier you're not putting that the strain on like you you mentioned the patellar tendon area and and in certain areas so there's there's certainly that side of it too yes it's more efficient it's going to be more enjoyable it's going to be more comfortable and it could potentially be healthier for you uh, you mentioned earlier titanium you're mostly working in, in titanium frames uh, for for those listeners that don't know about titanium why titanium well titanium is a really wonderful metal it's very strong and it's quite a bit less dense than steel, two-thirds the density of steel with almost the same tensile strength. But it also has its property, elongation is higher than that of steel. So, you know, elongation you can relate to like very high-strength steel. You know not to use your very fancy kitchen knife as a screwdriver because you'll break the tip off because it's got such low elongation. In order to make it such high strength that it holds an edge well, you lose the ability to be flexible. And titanium is much more flexible in in that regard, which makes it survive crashes better than a steel, where a steel bike would tend to crumple, a titanium bike will tend to just spring back into shape. It it can never rust at normal you know temperatures. It it will not oxidize, unlike steel, which of course will oxidize and you know Aluminum will, if you've ever gotten your seat post stuck in your bike, you know that aluminum oxidizes as well. And, and in density, it's halfway in between steel and aluminum, but it's much higher strength than aluminum and much higher durability because, because of this, this high elongation, whereas aluminum is quite, doesn't take very much to, to break it. So it's something that we can make really great bikes at a reasonable weight for really huge people that we can guarantee for life. We know it's not going to break on them. 
What would the turnaround be for, for a bike? Because you may have heard we're sort of in a bike boom and a lot of bike shops don't have any bikes. Yeah. So if somebody is listening to this and they're just like, I'm, I'm going to his website right now. And I know on your website, you've got both the custom bikes and the uncustom bikes. Do you have bikes available that are, you know, the non-custom ones? And if so, what sort of turnaround do you have there? And what sort of turnaround uh, is happening right now at uh, Zen Cycles? So fully custom bikes, fully custom titanium bikes, we're still two and a half to three months. Okay, two and a uh, half to three months, yep. Yeah. And our other brand, Clydesdale, which is titanium, titanium road, mountain, hybrid, e-bikes, everything. They're all titanium bikes for tall people and their stock sizes. And those, we have, yeah, we've had unprecedented sales during this during this pandemic. So, so it's been hard for us to keep them in stock, but we have relatively decent stock of frames. And then the, then the challenge is getting all the other parts that we were in the same bind that, that a lot of bike shops are of trying to source and to have a bike be all done, except you're missing a rear derailleur is a frustrating deal. But for the most part, we are able to, if we have those frames in stock we're still able to deliver the bike within three weeks or so and if we don't have it in stock still even on the Clydesdale's worst case is about three and a half months and then you know I also design these bikes for KHS which are steel steel bikes so they say you know KHS bike but it's designed by Leonard Zinn available in double XL and 3XL mountain bike and a and a like gravel road disc brake bike and those completely sold out, uh, all the U.S. stock of those. And so they won't be producing, KHS won't be producing another run of those until winter. So we don't know when we'll see those again. So that's been frustrating because that was like a $2,000 option we had for, for really tall people who are cooped up and want to be out on a bike and can't use public transit. And, you know, all the reasons that the bike boom has gone crazy they could get a bike for a reasonable amount of money for 2000 bucks. If they weren't already a bike fanatic, you know, it's, they didn't have to go too deeply. Whereas our, our, our Clydesdales are going to start more like 4,000. And so it's too bad. We can't do that for now, but. So when you're not out on a bike, what are you doing? <laughs> well, like recently I've been doing a, a sunglasses optics test for for oh that's work talk let's talk about fun stuff what do you do what do you do for fun when you're not out for a bike ride it's been so hot i I do a lot of kayaking i mean you're getting out on the water yeah whitewater kayaking has been something i've been doing since i was a teenager and i'm 62 now and i just feel so fortunate that i can still do it and i can still find people to do it with because most of the people my age have given it up you know and but now my son-in-law and daughter are into it too. And a month ago we went up and and ran a river in the Great Bear Wilderness up in northern Montana, which where you had to fly in, fly in on a little plane and land on a dirt runway in order to get to the river. And then five wonderful days on river and and uh, and around here we have even now this time of year there's you know man-made kayak courses that take advantage of things like water coming down from there's a lake up here called carter lake that this time of year the the farmers now need 
irrigation water because there's no water left in the river or minimal water in the river. And this irrigation water comes down from Carter Lake. And some buddies of mine who build whitewater parks, they took advantage of that. The water's only in the river for like 200 yards, maybe. Yeah, 150 yards, maybe. And they put two holes, two water features in there in that space of time. And then the water shunted off again into irrigation ditches. But it's awesome because in a kayak, you can play in the same hole, you know, surfing and whatever. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like surfing, except with, without a surfboard. And you can just, so that that's, that's what I do. And I have a dog. I walk my dog a lot. Yeah. And you still get in uh, the winter time. You, you get some uh, winter wintertime activities and sports in, right? Yeah. Backcountry skiing, cross-country skiing. So, so yeah, I've, I've changed, you know, gone from cross-country ski racing, mostly skate, skate technique, which is very demanding of your cardiovascular system, to mostly classic skiing, which is kick and glide style, which is still requires lots of technique and it's fascinating, you know, and there's always lots more to learn about the wax and everything. And backcountry skiing, where basically you're plodding up a mountain with, there's no urgency about it. You're just going to climb to the top of this mountain as long as it takes, and then you ski down it. So it's great. Good stuff. Good stuff. Hey, Leonard, is there anything that we haven't yet talked about that you want to make sure that we address today? Hmm. Yeah, I can't think of anything. I mean, I... I just tend to still be fascinated by bicycle technology and I'm always going to try and figure out, you know, like test how fast tires roll or whatever it is for, for Vela News. And then that'll inform what I do with my own bikes that I build. And yeah, it's good stuff. Well, the, the final question I have for you is what advice do you have for the listeners about living a long, healthy, active life? Yeah. My advice is, you know, head out the door <laughs> and, and, uh, and whatever it is, you know, do something every day, walking your dog for half an hour or, or whatever it is that I'm certain that that's gonna, it certainly Im improves my mental health getting out every day and doing something out outdoors, but it also, I'm sure, is adding to my longevity. And then when you run into roadblocks like I have with my heart, rather than having it be something that then you become a couch potato, it stops you from doing something. Just figure out ways that you can do it, you know, like I was skiing where I do different types of skiing now or with cycling where I ride an e-bike and, and where you can still get the same kind of enjoyment that it brought you to it in the first place while having an, a, a level of, of demand on your, on your physiology that's appropriate to where you are right then, whether it's because of age or because of some other issue. So, Yeah. And it sounds like it's, there's a little bit of prioritization there too, because as you just mentioned, you could probably be building bikes all day long and not take time out for yourself. That's right. Yes. So, and, 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 and I do think that the tendency is to fill the available hours with work. That's what we do. And uh, everybody around us is doing it. And it's not that easy to break that cycle. But I also never can look back and say, well, geez, I didn't get 
very much done that year because I was riding my bike so much. I mean, that doesn't even come up, you know? You look back and like, why did I work so hard? I think I tend to be more time efficient anyway when I have to when I have to jam my work day into a more constrained size day because I, you know, want to go skiing or whatever, or kayaking. So well, that actually brings up a quick question for me and or in my mind listening to what you're saying there is because you mentioned it earlier about being able to ride with friends. It seems like, you know, being able to have a group of of friends that you're going to meet up with to go do an activity helps in that process. Wouldn't you agree of, of yes. putting the work down and and saying I need to to, you know, step away and that yeah, accountability, I, I guess. Yeah, if you if you promise somebody you're going to be there, that's going to help. That's, that's a support system. Uh, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't happen to feel the need for, for that to get me out the door. I'm going to go out anyway, but it certainly gets me out at a specific time and has my day be more focused. If I said, okay, I'm going to meet you there at eight and then, then, okay, then I know, you know, the rest of my day is already sort of structured. Whereas if, if it's, looser, like, oh, I'm just going to go out riding at some point, then I can very often let it grow to the point where I paying attention to emails that are not at all critical. And then suddenly realize, holy cow, you know, I've only got a half an hour before we, you know, I was going to go out to dinner with my wife or whatever it is, you know, that support is always nice. And just some things that you do like, like kayaking and backcountry skiing, it's not that smart to do alone either that, you know, you want to have somebody to rescue your butt if you have a problem. And so there's, there's that, that it's always, and it's always just more fun to do it with somebody else. But I went through a long period with cycling before I did the e-bike where I couldn't ride with anybody else because I never knew what was going to happen with my heart. And I start off with somebody and 10 minutes into it, I've got to turn around, you know, it was like very frustrating. And so I tended to just ride by myself. Now with the e-bike, I feel like, you know, whatever. I take anybody's invitation to go riding with them. Yeah, brought the joy back. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Well, Leonard, I am absolutely stoked that you took the time to answer my email and join me here on the Active Towns podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it, John. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you found this conversation with Leonard Zinn to be educational and entertaining. And I highly recommend his fabulous books by Velo Press and his columns in Velo News. I've included these and many other helpful links in the show notes. Thanks once again going out to Leonard for taking the time to share his story with us and for researching and writing about the Haywire Heart Syndrome. I'm certain that it has saved lives. As just a quick reminder before we part ways, please don't hesitate to drop me a line if you have any feedback, suggestions, or questions. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. It's always wonderful to hear from y'all. By the way, if you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please help us grow our audience and this movement by telling a friend or two. Okay, that's it for episode number 42. Please take care of yourselves and one another. And until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.